compassion, empathy. These are the tools we use to build community, to bridge divides. These are the cornerstones to a democracy erected in hope, a bulwark against cruelty and oppression. These are the beacons exposing rank injustice and pushing back the dark tide of tyranny. But neither can prevail if we get into the habit of offering up our pain upon the altar of toxic productivity. Now, more than ever, we need to regroup, step back, dress our wounds, heal up, and recover for the road ahead. That is my parting call to action on this week's episode, and this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host of this podcast. I had some trouble figuring out what I really wanted to cover. I had a topic in mind, and then, of course, SCOTUS released its opinion on Friday, and everything sort of went out the window. On the one hand, I want to be responsive to what's probably on most people's minds right now. On the other hand, I don't want to just repeat what everyone else is saying. There are people out there who are far better equipped than I am in providing you with the legal analysis, with what the political agendas are going to look like, and perhaps how, as a society, we need to respond to some of the urgencies raised by that decision. Instead, I thought it would be better to take it home. This is always my response to things that are happening in the outside world because I cannot control what's going on out there, but I can control what's going on in here. And by in here, I truly do mean in my own heart. So I thought I'd tackle a topic that I think is probably very practical and relevant to many of you, whether it's because you're reeling from this decision, perhaps reeling from the decision before that on gun legislation, or simply upset by what's going on in the world or watching those suffer from it. And that, of course, is a topic that I've been harping on many times, toxic productivity. What do we do when the outside world intersects with our inside world? What are the expectations when things going on around us are impacting our ability to remain professional, to remain at our best, to remain alert to the needs of those around us? And of course, if you aren't in a position to listen to this week's podcast and would rather read it, you can find the link to that as well as a bunch of other things in the show notes below. And with that, let's get into it. Recently, I had the opportunity to speak with a young new attorney at my firm, what one of my assistants used to refer to as baby lawyer. She is Asian American, and she wanted to pick my brain about what it was like working at a large law firm where faces like ours are still pretty rare. Our chat lasted about 30 minutes. Uh, I was in the back of an Uber, and we covered a wide range of topics, including our feelings about the shooting that happened in March of last year in Atlanta, Georgia. 
For many Asian Americans, myself included, the Atlanta shooting was sort of an inflection point. We could no longer ignore the anxiety that had been simmering in our bellies as we watched the growing antipathy and violence toward our own communities, particularly our elders. As the coverage unfolded on TV and across Twitter, I personally spiraled into a really dark place of rage, grief, and despair. It prompted me to post a video on Instagram about protecting our elders, to write a blog post for the firm about what it was like to be an Asian American woman attorney, and to take responsibility as a representative of the AAPI community much more seriously. Until that time, I had not intentionally assumed a role of representative for the AAPI community, but as a result of that moment in our collective history, I realized that, yeah, I have have a voice at this table and I need to learn to use that voice with more intention. So I did all of these things, but at some point I realized, man, I'm exhausted in a way that I simply was not prepared for. Now, as an endurance athlete, and I still think it's so weird to call myself an endurance athlete, I usually just say, oh yeah, I like to run marathons, but I am pretty well acquainted with the idea of pacing myself guarding against that temptation to just run at the very beginning of a race while my legs are fresh and practically sizzling with adrenaline. And if you're a marathon runner, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You got two weeks of taper in those legs and you're ready to just like run seven minute miles for the full marathon. And I know there are some of you listening who are like, yeah, no, that's actually how fast I run a marathon. Well, my fifth grade gym teacher used to say it's like spreading peanut butter on a piece of bread. Instead of dumping it all onto one corner, you want to spread it out evenly across the entire slice of bread. Of course, in a race, this presupposes the luxury of a finish line, a set beginning, middle, and end, a predictable conclusion to the challenge. And more importantly, there's no one actually chasing you in a race. Interestingly, the reaction to stress, and we've talked about, you know, the flight or fight mode that we enter into when we are stressed out. It's physiologically very similar to what actually occurs during that race. According to Harvard Medical School, quote, a stressful situation, whether something environmental, such as a looming work deadline, or physiological, such as persistent worry about losing a job, can trigger a cascade of stress hormones that produce well-orchestrated physiological changes. A stressful incident can make the heart pound and breathing quicken, muscles tense, and beads of sweat appear. Sound familiar? The body's reaction to stress is, as we've discussed before, the evolved response to danger. Picture a saber-toothed tiger chasing a hairy man with a club. That's always what I picture when I hear flight or fight. Hairy man considers, do I run or do I fight this saber-toothed tiger with my club? Regardless of what he decides, the physiological chain reaction is the same. The hypothalamus sends your adrenal glands into overdrive, which pumps your body full of that adrenaline. The adrenaline, in turn, optimizes your body's ability to react to danger. Narrow veins in your lungs widen to supply as much oxygen to your brain as possible, increasing alertness. Your vision, hearing, even your sense of smell grow sharper. Adrenaline also unlocks reserved stores of fat and sugar, supplying energy to your entire body. Body. 
Your adrenal glands also spike your bloodstream with cortisol, the hormone that tells the body when it can finally release the gas pedal, i.e. when the saber-toothed tiger is either dead or far behind you. But did you know all of these changes happen so quickly that people aren't aware of them. In fact, the wiring is so efficient that the amygdala and hypothalamus start this cascade even before the brain's visual centers have had a chance to fully process what is happening. I just think that's so crazy. I mean, what that means is that your body is going through the, you know, heart rate climbing, the breathing quickening, the muscles tensing, the beats of sweat. That whole chain reaction starts even before your eyes have had a chance to register the saber-toothed tiger. Perhaps because of how quickly it all goes down, some of us have trouble hitting the brakes on stress. I mean, how do you know to put a stop to something if you didn't even know that it began to begin with, right? But the problem is, if we don't slow down, then the body doesn't know to turn off the fight or flight mode it entered into. Ultimately, we risk exposing our bodies to chronic low-level stress and the catastrophic health implications that may potentially follow. For example, persistent epinephrine surges can damage blood vessels and arteries, increasing blood pressure, and raising risk of heart attacks or strokes. Elevated cortisol levels create physiological changes that help to replenish the body's energy stores that are depleted during the stress response, but they inadvertently contribute to the buildup of fat tissue and to weight gain. Studies also suggest that chronic stress can cause structural changes in the brain, like literally change the shape of your brain, rendering it more vulnerable to depressive disorders. Chronic low-level stress results in chronic inflammation, the precursor for a host of diseases, including cardiovascular dysfunctions, diabetes, cancer, and autoimmune syndromes. So if we know that chronic levels of stress can literally kill people, then why are we so good at ignoring it? Well, as we just talked about, chronic stress has a way of sort of sneaking up on you undetected until it settles in like that uninvited squatter residing in your body rent-free. But let's be honest here. Beyond the general undetectability of chronic stress, in times of crisis, there's a prevailing sentiment that we should simply muscle through it, that somehow pushing through tough times by pretending, oh yeah, nothing's wrong, we're all good, that this is a good thing, a sign of that mental toughness we all could use a lot more of, the thing that will set us apart and make us successful where others have failed. You see, this was largely the attitude I had at first after the Atlanta shootings. I thought that in order to prove my value to my clients, my partners, my colleagues, and my firm, I had to show up to work as usual and pretend that I was okay. I was anything but okay. I wanted to disappear and hide underneath my desk. I wanted to shut my laptop, wanted to hear that little click as the two halves latched together in a way that conclusively silenced the world that had suddenly grown too loud for me. Every single email from the innocent, oh, there's leftover donuts in the cafe to the what's the ETA on the motion to compel, they were augers drilling into my brain as if they were tailor-made to inflict unavoidable pain. But there was a constant refrain underneath everything. You have to push through this. Don't show them. Don't show any of them that this is bothering you. It's weak. It's effeminate. 
It's overly emotional. It's unprofessional. This undercurrent, this way of thinking, of course, totally not new. Back in 2013, I had to put my dog Billy down. Less than an hour after feeling his paw go limp in my hands, I led a conference call with my client on transactional data preservation. I remember I was standing over my kitchen sink and I was wiping all these tears coming down my face no matter how hard I tried, but I was also heartlessly proud of how even my voice sounded, how no one on this call could ever tell that my dog had just died. Now, some might say, well, I'm sure your client would have been really grateful for that level of commitment and dedication. Maybe. But what about my commitment to my dog, Billy, to his memory? What about my dedication to my family who was also grieving? What about my obligations to myself? Why was I so quick to assign the back seat to all of those things in favor of a conference call? And more perversely, why was I proud of it? During the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, I went on autopilot at work. I had a big, really contentious case on my hands, and we were in quarantine. I could sense this disquiet in my body, a heightened alertness that wouldn't go away. I cut out coffee, I took a few weeks off of running, and I even stopped posting on social media as much. But it never even once occurred to me that I might want to step away, maybe for a day, from the billable hour. Why would I? The pandemic had us in advice, and I, like virtually every other human being, was worried every hour of every day that I might lose my job. It took a particularly unpleasant settlement conference with a testosterone-laced team of opposing counsel to make me realize just how close to redlining I was. They were all the things you imagine boorish, domineering lawyers to be. They were cutting me off, interrupting me, forgetting my name, and eventually they ended with swearing at me. Niceties they seemed to reserve for the only woman on the call. They remembered my male partner's name easily enough. Although I managed to hold my own on that call... I burst into tears shortly after hanging up. I remember I was staring out my living room window and I was counting the number of outdoor AC units lining the brick wall across from me and I was just berating myself for being such a girl. But even as the self-flagellation continued, there was a small voice that managed to connect the dots. Watching what happened to Ahmad Arbery and George Floyd Observing the amount of gaslighting that occurred, notwithstanding video evidence of injustice, all while being stuck inside my house, cut off from my family and loved ones, it caught up to me. The repeated unmasking of the country I loved, combined with the sheer powerlessness of isolation, was simply more than my body could handle. I wanted more than anything in the world to just quit my job, just yell at every single man I came across, including my husband, while stuffing myself with a bucket of ramen noodles, all rather irrational and not terribly productive reactions to a single bad conference call, one that I'd had many, many times in my career. The peril in pretending that everything is okay when you go to work is that it removes the safeguards provided for by a finish line. The longer you ignore the underlying cause of your body's fight-or-flight response, the higher the risk that you'll run right past that finish line and eventually crash into something that'll force you to stop. 
It could be a really bad settlement conference that makes you hate every male on the planet. Or it could be a physical illness or injury, one that won't take you out of office for just a day or two, but for weeks. Taking the time to then develop that self-awareness to know when you are in crisis, emotional or otherwise, is a critical part of unshackling yourself from chronic stress. But equally important is the fact that we also need to discard the notion that toughing it out is always a good thing. Now, I'll admit there are some times, dude, you're just going to need to tough it out. But sometimes we need to learn to step back. And this is true from the perspective of both the employee and the employer. After all, the prevailing norms of, quote, professionalism, they didn't just come out of nowhere. These are just some really mind-bending statistics about productivity here in the United States. For example, the productivity of the individual American worker has increased 430%. Since 1950, this is a totally staggering number, given that the standard of living has increased by such a small margin. Where is that money going to? Because it's not going into the pockets of the individual American worker. I think we can all guess where that money is going to. In the United States, there is no federal mandate for paid sick leave. This is so mind blowing to me. In fact, the U.S. remains the only industrialized country in the world that has no required annual leave. In most industrialized countries, with the exception of Canada, Japan, and U.S., workers get at least 20 paid vacation days on average. In France and Finland, they get an entire month off paid every year. The American worker has been trained to believe their worth is directly a function of their productivity. While corporations attempt to pay more than lip service to the elusive work-life balance, there are a few things you and I can do independent of systematic labor reform to try to ensure that we aren't running straight towards a brick wall. Number one, trust your instincts. In your gut, you know when something is abnormally stressful to you. In the same way, your body has evolved to know the difference between a saber-toothed tiger and a koala. For example, I knew that Atlanta was causing a great deal more emotional upheaval and anxiety than the everyday headline in the news. I should have paid attention, but instead, I ignored it for as long as I could. Acknowledge your feelings. Acknowledging how you feel about a distressing situation can provide almost instant and welcome relief. My favorite way of doing this, of course, this is not a surprise, is writing my feelings down. According to some studies, expressive writing or journaling can help reduce anxiety and stress. It doesn't need to be a novel, guys. Jot down a few bullets or sentences. Just the exercise of naming the things that are bothering you can make them less intimidating. Step back. What I should have done on March 16th, the day of the shootings, and even the day after, was to call in sick. I should have bowed out of that conference call in the wake of the George Floyd tragedy. And when my Billy boy died, I should have emailed my client and asked that we reschedule our conference call. I should have told those stupid voices in my head that said doing so would be, quote, unprofessional to simply shut the F up. Meditate. Now, I've talked before about the benefits of meditation, but I want to repeat here. A recent study found that regular meditation relieved anxiety, pain, and depression. And get this, that for depression, meditation was as effective as a pharmaceutical antidepressant. 
I mention this here because I realize not all of us are in a position where we can simply call in sick or take an unexplained personal day. But even 20 minutes of meditation a day can have a profound effect on one's resilience to stress. I remember there was a stretch of time where I, I could not take a day off. I really couldn't, but I was working like crazy around the clock and I was extremely stressed out. So I started to meditate every single morning, just a little bit. I started with five minutes and worked my way up to 25 minutes a day. And what I would do is I would actually put a post-it note on my door saying I'm in a conference call so that nobody interrupted me when in actuality I was sitting cross-legged in my chair inside of my office meditating. It made an enormous difference to the level of stress I was able to handle because sometimes we can't change the things that are causing us the stress. We thus need to change how we react and cope with it. Unplug. I realize this is a little odd coming from me given where we are listening to me talk right now, but we all need to learn to unplug from the internet every once in a while. Look, there is no question that the advent of network connectivity has brought a great deal of good into our lives, particularly during the pandemic when we had no other means of seeing loved ones. Thank God for Zoom. But there is a cost to too much information. Take a walk. Read a book, the kind that smells like dried ink. Listen to your favorite playlist while baking some cookies. These are the kinds of unplugged activities that you need in order to recharge. Stop shaming yourself. And you know exactly what I mean. You do not need to feel guilty for not being absolutely outraged and sad and angry over all the things happening in the world all the time. You don't need to shame yourself for taking 57 minutes to veg in front of the TV or read a good mystery novel. You can't be at your best when your family or even the world really needs you if you're spreading yourself too thin all the time. Recovery is a critical component of endurance to ensure that the fight or flight response remains effective when actual danger looms. So tell that voice inside your head that's pummeling you for taking a break to, well, you know, shut the F up. Exercise. While taking a break physically is crucial to guarding against chronic stress, I will say regular light exercise like walking or yoga has also been proven to counteract the effects of stress. And of course, I can personally attest to this. You know, when I'm not training for a, a race or a marathon, I do like to run just very easily, very comfortably. And a lot of the times it was the best tool, at least for me, to clear my head. Sometimes I would actually start a run being totally mad about something, frustrated, completely riled up about something I'd read in the news, and I just want to lash out to anyone who was nearby. And I'd say, you know what? No, why don't you go for a run? If you still feel the need to lash out, I'll let you do it. But first, complete this run. And I got to tell you, nine out of 10 times after that run, I did not feel the need to react. Instead, I was able to plan how I was going to cope with this distressing situation in a way that was thoughtful, intentional, and most importantly, effective. Talk to someone. Sometimes I think we say things like, you don't need to be ashamed of getting professional help, while in our heads we're saying, oh my God, I would never. If it's okay for your friend, colleague, or sibling to find someone to talk to, even if they have to pay them to listen, why should it be any different for you? 
We should all know by now the debilitating effects isolation can have on our spirits. There is no shame in seeking counseling, therapy, or even just a friendly support group to get you through it. There is a lot going on in our world right now. It's simply unrealistic to expect that any feeling person would tune the world out and show up to the office as usual. And by office, I'm not just talking about a traditional employer office. Your office could be a home office. It can be social media. It can be the kitchen or the laundry room. It could be your kid's school district. It can be your in-law's garage or your best friend's sofa. Whether your obligations are strictly professional, familial, or social, the world can and will get in the way of our ability to satisfy them effectively. We're no good to any of them if we crash and burn. So hit the pause button before we suit up and head out to ensure we are at our best when they need and deserve our best. Every week, I invite listeners and readers of the newsletter to submit questions. They can range from anything as simple as, hey, where can I find that mandu recipe to, I'm burnt out, I'm not living my passion, can you help me figure it all out? Today, Katie has asked, hey, Joanne, I'm a 17-year-old girl going into college soon, and I'm a bit worried about a mindset I have. I've never used the phrase, this too shall pass, for any worldly tragedy, I've only ever used it as a mantra for myself, but I'm worried it might be unhealthy thinking. Every time I'm faced with my AP classes, bad friends, I try to think to my college life and how much better that will be. I always say that I should let that pain go because eventually my high school life will pass. But I listened recently again to your first episode of the podcast, and I'm wondering if this habit might be unhealthy and how I could tell if it is. Your words have helped me greatly in expressing myself, and I would really love it if you lend me some help, Katie. So Katie, thanks so much for sharing with us. And I wanted to ask you if you'd ever watched this movie, Anne of Green Gables. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. If you haven't, and you have about six hours to spare, I highly recommend it. Or better yet, pick up a copy of the book. One of my favorite lines from that movie is the following. It's not what the world holds for you but what you bring to it. This quote has radically changed my perspective on what my life is. I used to think about what my future promised me, a whole new group of friends in college, maybe even a passionate love affair and a prestigious new job that would make my parents proud of me. But I soon discovered that even if the setting changes, even if the world around me changes, it doesn't make much of a difference if the person I am doesn't grow. Remember, we are a product of our choices. I say this all the time in my podcast, newsletter, Instagram captions, and TikTok. Why? Because agency, the ability to shape your life with your own two hands, is the most joyful aspect of being alive. I used to have this really bad recurring dream for as long as I could remember. In the dream, I'm two years old. I'm wearing this hideous bright yellow shirt with red and blue trim, green buttons. It was a shirt that my mom always made me wear when I was about two or three years old. I'm sitting in the back seat of a car that's driving somewhere. I don't know where, but as the car keeps moving along, a disquiet settles over me and I'm itchy and uncomfortable fidgeting in that back seat. Several minutes pass and the discomfort 
grows into anxiety, which grows into worry, which explodes into this panic. And I finally get up on my knees on the back seat, grip the shoulders of the seats in front of me. I lean over to see who's driving the car because I want to ask them, where are we going? And the driver's seat is empty. The whole car is empty except for me. No one is driving the car. And as a two-year-old girl, my legs aren't even long enough to reach the brake pedal because I always, always try. I wake up, slick with cold sweat, and hating this dream more than ever. There is nothing more terrifying, more destructive than being relegated to the back seat of our own lives. The phrase, this too shall pass, that isn't harmful in and of itself. I often say something similar to myself when shit happens. You can't win them all. It acknowledges that some things are out of our control and stressing about them isn't always productive or a good use of our valuable time. But I think what you're concerned about, Katie, is whether you're now using the phrase, this too shall pass, to pass the buck. It can be tempting to label bad things as out of our control and thus something we don't need to do anything about. But what you allude to rather astutely is that when you give up ownership of the bad things, you may also end up giving up ownership of the good things. If you continue to decline the invitation to get into the driver's seat today, what makes you think you'll be able to assume it tomorrow? Agency, the ability to control your destiny instead of waiting for destiny to happen to you is the key to joy, the ultimate refutation of despair. And my God, we need that today more than ever. So if you get a bad grade, if your friends decide to screw you over, if your family appears determined to misunderstand you, instead of thinking about what you could have done to prevent those things, because you know what? The past, most certainly, that is out of your control. Consider how you might position yourself to prevent such outcomes in the future. Because here's the thing about that driver's seat, Katie. Even if you get lost along the way, when you finally get to your destination, the one that you select, at least you'll know that you're the one that got you there. Thanks again, Katie, for submitting your question. If you have a question about life, about love, about whatever, click the link in the show notes below. Just a couple of quick announcements. Number one, I will be in Toronto on July 2nd for the launch party of the People's Republic of North Korea, the really amazing art exhibit that is being put together by Han Voice. Again, Toronto, July 2nd. The launch party will actually be from 7 to 9. It's an evening event. Hopefully you've gotten your tickets if you're in the Toronto area. If you haven't, I'll include a link for that in the show notes below. Another reminder, on Wednesday, I will be hosting a live cooking demonstration for TKV meal planners. We'll be making tofu fried rice. It's going to be so good. If you're not a meal planner member and you want access to live cooking demonstrations and thousands of amazing plant-based recipes, you can hit the link in the show notes below. Parting thoughts. Over the past few weeks, we've been forced to reckon with unthinkable tragedies. The loss of life is particularly excruciating when it was preventable. On the heels of watching families destroyed by gun violence, 
It was enraging to read through an opinion authored by those entrusted with guarding our democracy when they seemed more intent on protecting power. And just this past Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an opinion overturning Roe versus Wade. In his concurrence, Justice Clarence Thomas called for the, quote, reconsideration of legal precedent protecting a woman's right to contraception and gay marriage, calling them demonstrably erroneous decisions. Now, I want to just step back. Nine out of 10 Americans believe in universal background checks, and yet we don't have them. Only three out of 10 Americans believed that Roe versus Wade should have been overturned, and yet here we are. So it's entirely possible that even though the overwhelming majority of people in the United States believe in a woman's right to contraception, believe that two gay people should be able to get married, live their life, have their love, it's not our business, it's no longer good enough to say this too shall pass, because it may not because it may get worse. As I stayed up last night chatting with my friend, a man who married his husband just a couple years ago, I found it hard, like physically hard, to tamp down the fear welling up in my heart for him. I couldn't ignore this anxiety I felt for myself, knowing that a man with a great deal of power over my life was openly trying to take away my right to say, I don't wanna bring kids into a world that doesn't seem to value them more than guns. Whether it's a global pandemic, a war, another mass shooting, the endless reporting of hate crimes, or the unchecked erosion of human rights at the highest levels of government, it can all seem a bit much. And yet, we continue to operate under the belief that we're not permitted to react to these things outside the confines of our home. There is a reason we are called human resources. If computers or robots could do our jobs as well as we could, then they would. Our value to our employers, our colleagues, families, friends, and communities is built upon our humanity. And our humanity requires us to feel things, even bad things, even hard things. Sometimes I worry that the more we try to act like robots, the worse things will get for all of us. Compassion, empathy, these are the tools we use to build community, to bridge divides. These are the cornerstones to a democracy erected in hope, a bulwark against cruelty and oppression. These are the beacons exposing rank injustice and pushing back the dark tide of tyranny. But neither can prevail if we get into the habit of offering up our pain upon the altar of toxic productivity. Now, more than ever, we need to regroup, step back, dress our wounds, heal up, and recover for the road ahead. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean so much to me for you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button below, leave a rating and or comment. And of course, if you found something particularly insightful or inspiring about this episode or any other episode, please go ahead and share that with your friends, your family, with your loved ones, or your colleagues, even on social media. 
until next week, have a lovely day. 